Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development, or CID as we call it, Beyond COVID podcast. This is a series of conversations on various dimensions of COVID response and recovery. Our goal with these conversations and with CID's Beyond COVID Research Initiative is to use lessons learned and capitalize on innovations sparked by the pandemic to address losses and more broadly, reimagine global development in the post-COVID era. My name is Akil Merchant, and I'm a student at Harvard College and a CID student ambassador. The Beyond COVID podcast usually features CID faculty research, but this week on a special edition, we're excited to hear from an external perspective. We are joined by an expert who has a tremendous amount of insight into the global health field and its particular nuances amidst COVID-19. Dr. Stephen Phillips, Vice President of Science and Strategy at the COVID Collaborative. I'm sitting down with Dr. Phillips on February 25th, 2022, to discuss COVID-19 vaccine distribution and long-term pandemic preparedness. Dr. Phillips, thank you for joining us today. Yes, it's my pleasure to be with you, Akil. So Dr. Phillips, I'm aware that you have an extensive background in global health. You've supervised initiatives for ExxonMobil as medical director for global projects and helped influence how the World Health Organization combats malaria under the board and executive committee of the Rollback Malaria Partnership. You've also worked for the US Centers for Disease Control and the New York City Department of Public Health. Now you're at the COVID Collaborative. And could you share with listeners a bit more detail on what the COVID Collaborative is and your role within the initiative? Yes, COVID Collaborative was formed in May of 2020 as a nonprofit that brought together leaders from the political sphere, from science, from public health, the economy, education, and all with the notion of providing research, information, and guidance to federal government, uh, state governments, and local jurisdictions. And then we expanded by having a number of uh, professional and trade groups that are part of our network, that we basically are a convening platform for COVID policy and practice and try to help government and community-based organizations uh, throughout the country. So I wanted to start off by discussing the COVID Collaborative's COVID Global Accountability Platform. It was established in October, 2021, and it was developed largely in response to disparities in access to resources like vaccines and like PPE that have shifted the timeline for different countries' recovery from the pandemic. And from this initiative and the COVID Collaborative's efforts overall, I wanted to ask first, what do you find to be the major shortcomings in the global rollout of vaccines that are currently manifesting into inequities? Well, I think the, the vaccine rollout is an important kind of natural test for how countries and local jurisdictions all over the world collaborate with kind of a central production and distribution supply chain. So I don't think there's been precedent in history for having 8 billion people on the globe pretty much all need uh, access to vaccines. And most of them are two shots and now three with a booster, depending on the indications of one specific age. 
So we are talking about in round numbers, 12 to 16 billion doses of vaccine that need to be in uh, everyone's arm, ideally throughout the world. So the scale and scope of the problem is really unprecedented. And as we all know, the health system's delivery capacity of every country is very, very different. And even within countries, especially large ones, you have very large disparities locally. And then across continents like Asia, Africa, Europe, North America, you've got other disparities among countries. So it's, it's a, a wide-scale problem with a unusually silver bullet solution. Everybody knows how effective and safe these vaccines are. They really are miracle drugs. And there are many variants of the vaccine, some American, some European, some Chinese, some Indian manufactured, and they're all good. They range from very good to great. And the question really is how to get them into arms. And so that is a several PhD theses in researching international development and healthcare systems, because you have to pay for it. Somebody has to pay for it, finance its, in this case, development's already done, but finance its purchase and distribution. And for those people that have done a lot of work in global health, you really get to know that the most difficult area of all of global health, no matter what the intervention is, is the last mile. It's, it's, it's kind of the last mile problem, which is even where the commodity is produced in sufficient volume, even when it's financed, even when the supply chain, in this case, there needs to be a cold chain that protects the temperature of the vaccine until its point of use. When all of that is intact, you still have tremendous issues in the last mile in, in most countries, especially in Africa and some of the really poorest countries. The delivery system, even when everything else is intact locally, is, is a major problem. So as we speak, I believe the world has administered something like 11 billion doses. But then please recognize that in some cases, that's two or three or even four shots per person. So that doesn't mean that 11, that the, the, that the world has been blanketed. It really means that there are even bigger disparities than you imagine. So in Africa, for instance, only about 10 or 11% of the whole population is vaccinated even once. So yes, there are tremendous disparities. It's tempting to finger point and look for blame. And I think that's overly simplistic. There are many bottlenecks, but would like to make clear that it's not all the lack of financing by rich countries and lack of care and empathy and humanitarian concern by the rich countries. It has also a lot to do with the difficulty of cold chain preservation and delivery in some of the very remote areas of the world that do not have electricity, do not have roads, do not have running water, et cetera. So that's, that's really a part of the picture. And so you've talked a lot about 
the last mile. And for me, I feel like a fundamental part of getting to this last mile, when you have all of the financing done, all of the like major broad changes you've made, but just getting to that last mile, getting into communities, a fundamental part of that is understanding low and middle income countries' distinct needs. It means genuinely accompanying them so that you not only understand community members' perspectives, you understand healthcare workers' perspectives in their everyday lives, not only within the context of pandemic, but beyond that, you have to build a sense of trust. But obviously building trust, it takes time. And right now we don't have time because as you know, like COVID poses an immediate threat. If you continue to wait, you can introduce more variants and the pandemic can continue to have these disparities globally. So what I would love to learn more about is how has COVID-19 complicated the efforts to accompany and really serve these under-resourced communities within the last mile? And how do you think organizations and international healthcare institutions should go about developing partnerships with diverse actors within these countries so that they can start you know, getting to that last mile? Yes, I think Akhil, that's a great question and really puts your emphasis right where it belongs, which is local ownership and responsibility for the last mile, because really it's all local. And when you say we in the international community, what we can do, my own view is we can do a lot in terms of the upstream part of the supply chain, meaning developing things, making them better, making them user-friendly to the end-using population. And we can help get it there and get there to me arbitrarily is the receiving port, uh, either shipping port or airport. That's where the supply chain upstream ends and the downstream begins, which is under the authority of the country. I think the country in general should take the responsibility of making sure that the product gets from the pallets and, and boxes to where it needs to go. And it's frequently the role of government. And I think government's role is unimpeachably key. And government, where it has the trust and faith and support of the people, will do a better job getting it to where it needs to go. And so the, to the extent it doesn't get to where it needs to go, it highlights local governmental issues of the level of people's support and buy-in. That's one overarching thought. And the other is, as we all know, if you spend time in villages or countryside anywhere in the world, local is important, whether you're in Wyoming or Zambia, and people have trusted mayors, uh, re religious leaders, medical workers, nurses, technicians, witch doctors, it doesn't really matter. And so I think it has to be appropriate to the local circumstance, to the local culture. And I think most of these countries that are developing and poor have variable relationships with local organizations, many of which are tribal, many of which are vested in uh, generations, if not millennia of role and tradition. So there's a lot of work there to do, but I think you also, Akhil, raised the key point of urgency. This is not something that in this case 
you develop over years or decades. This is something where you have to employ existing sources of leadership and trust and support. And so I think that exists. The question is how to activate it. And in a lot of countries, it's being done relatively well. In some countries, it's done poorly. The countries that are suffering the most from COVID are ironically the ones that are suffering the most from civil strife and other disease. The countries that have the least degree of social cohesion and have trouble actually day-to-day supplying food and water and electricity and, and are riven by civil strife are, are the ones that are gonna have trouble with COVID. So um, I wouldn't, in the sense of international development, don't look at this as a public health problem. Look at it as a commodity distribution problem that is dependent on the organizing civil and social and health structures of societies. That's what we're really testing here. And it's we've never had the opportunity to test it on a global scale as we now have under the urgency that you mentioned with the COVID vaccine. I wanted to go off one of the things you mentioned. You said that civil strife and COVID kind of have these compounding effects. The more civil strife that is present, the more difficulty there is to really, um, I think, address and eliminate COVID. And I, one of the reports recently published by the Global Accountability Platform in December 2021, it talked about a, ver- a variety of topics. But one of the main discussions was that how can we tie the current efforts to you know, increase vaccine uptake in low and middle income countries to long-term sustainable development. And so I wanted to ask, just overall, even though the threat of COVID-19 is immediate, how can we not only address that immediate threat, but long-term translate the gains that we can see in COVID-19 vaccine uptake in these vaccination programs to broader sustainable development goals in low and middle income countries? That's a very hard nut to crack and also just another very terrific question, central to the whole issue of the success of the model used for international development. So uh, I think you really nailed the question. The answer is unfortunately not a positive one, which is currently these developing countries are actually concerned about the vast amounts of local effort devoted to distribution and access to the COVID vaccine as being a barrier to the existing public health programs malaria control, water sanitation, you know, infrastructure programs, it's actually a threat because it's a competing element for resources. So not only is this COVID campaign necessarily not building the sustainable longer term health capacity and infrastructure, it may actually be inimical to it operationally. And I think that's the case in many countries now. And as to how you actually do something about that, I think it's it's mostly at the country level, which is healthcare workers can actually be utilized for any number of things. You know, we they don't have to be utilized for vertical disease control programs. They can be used horizontally in terms of capacity building, education, accountability, management systems. So it's, but it's something that's not directed top down. It's not 
something that uh, international development agencies can necessarily enforce, but it's something that they can be aware of and that the way that they offer their grants and technical support, they can emphasize the, the issue that you raise, which is absolutely critical, is how do we translate a vertical program into long-term sustainability? And there are models, by the way, community health worker development, central supply stores and distribution, logistics. There are models for that. It's just that it takes a lot of uh, awareness, uh, attention, and then incentives, financial incentives, local performance incentives, et cetera, to make happen. And just to wrap it up, you know, COVID is more of a threat to capacity building right now in general than it is an asset. I wanted to talk more about like the priorities of agencies and how they allocate funding to these particular programs. If these agencies know that top-down vaccination programs aren't best long-term for sustainable development in countries, and that their best way to eliminate COVID might be to integrate COVID with long-term sustainable development. Why are, I guess, why is their focus completely different? Why are we relying on the community health workers? I believe working locally is very important, but why can't we help start allocating funding to help these community health workers rather than just like a top-down process, because as of now, the top-down process is also very inefficient. There are a lot of bureaucratic inefficiencies that make it difficult to, you know, get vaccines into arms. You know, there's a lot more opportunity to raise money for causes that resonate with people that have money than for things that don't resonate, okay? So my shortest answer, which is not cynical, I hope, is... Do you have your wallet out when somebody asks for money for malaria or COVID vaccines or something you can relate to as a donor versus health training for healthcare workers, you know, versus helping a country develop and fund um, supply chains for vital commodities, drugs, vaccines, medications, for having villages be held accountable at the local level, not for the number of malaria bed nets that they, they've distributed, but for the sick days uh, that the kids have out of school. You know, so it, it's basically almost the entire philosophical change of how development agencies work, where they put their priorities, where they put their funding. And frankly, it's always been easier to raise money and spend money on things that, that the rich countries and the people, the tax base that funds the rich countries can relate to than things that are more intangible and more difficult to wrap into a cause, even though they are very vital for the overall effectiveness of a health delivery system. And I guess that just requires a very major paradigm shift in the global health field. And maybe over time, as you we recover from the pandemic and we look at just everyday quality of life within these low and middle income countries, then maybe that's, I guess, something that we can allocate more funding to, more emphasis on. But kind of going off of this idea of learning from the pandemic, I, I was interested in first your thoughts about like, why haven't we learned from previous pandemics? Why haven't we learned and taken what we've I'm um, seeing in previous pandemics, I'm able to apply it to this pandemic. Is it simply just because of how large scale it is? And we just haven't been able to 
really learn from past pandemics and we haven't monitored, I guess, the disparities as much as we are hoping to do now? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest bugaboos, I think, is the use of the term we in international development. So let me let me turn this around a little bit, which is to say you guys in international development, we is a diffuse term. And whenever I hear it in the field, spending a lot of time actually historically in the developing world down at the village level, whenever I here we, my first reaction is to ask the questioner, who do you mean? Seriously. And so meaning, I like to understand and allocate responsibilities clearly among stakeholders. And it's called uh, mapping of, of stakeholder interests. So we, the International Development Organization, whether it's American or European, or whether it's a nonprofit or a charity, has, to me, sort of upstream responsibilities. It's, and then the question, once you start getting into the country level, I like to use the term we, as distinct from the role of international development organizations. And we, within a country, then breaks down, do you mean the central government? Do you mean the state government? And by the way, in many cases, in many countries, state governments are de facto autonomous from federal governments. And then you've got tribal regions, you've got local communities, and the level of we-ness, I think, is really good to define and map. And that's part of the issue. Once you do that, you actually have a much clearer sense of pinning accountability on the right players you know, throughout the whole supply chain. But then let me say, it's not that these international development agencies haven't learned from past lessons and haven't tried to change their models. It's just that it's difficult to land on a successful one. And so to give you another example of a model, for quite some time, the United Kingdom Development Agency, DFID, DFID, changed their model. And instead of funding thematic programs, they decided let's allocate cash to the health budgets and other educational budgets and electrification budgets of country X. And they would give checks, specific checks to the countries and various ministries to spend either ad lib or on defined local projects that would be managed by the country, which speaks to the exact issue that you raised, Akil. How do you engender ownership and accountability, which is one way of generating sustainable results in development? And so the answer was, unfortunately, it didn't work too well because of corruption. The money was frequently siphoned into unauthorized activities, and it didn't wind up where it should. So the paradox is that that uh, development agencies and charities frequently play a surrogate government role in country that is very difficult for them to operationalize effectively. And I would say it's by and large not their fault. And they frequently take the blame. So it's, I won't say that it's an insoluble problem, but I also wouldn't say that 
very smart people with a lot of international development experience haven't thought about these things and that they're not out to replicate past mistakes. I think just as you said at the very intro, COVID is different because COVID is a pandemic and it has a such real-time urgency and su such a codependent element of wherever you can stop transmission, it's good for everybody else. So it, it's got a life of its own, if you will, in terms of not just relying on lofty principles, but you know, let's just save the lofty principles for next time. But for this time, let's just get on with it and do the absolute best that we can and swallow hard. And to, I guess, go off into more future thinking, here at CID and beyond COVID initiative, what we're thinking about is mainly what have we learned from the pandemic? And so I wanted to ask you, what are your main takeaways from this pandemic? And in light of that, how do you think, or what are the markers of pandemic preparedness that demand the most attention for future global health threats? All right. I think the next few years are going to feature a significant amount of very important research on answering your question, which is what are the lessons learned? And especially in terms of international development, I think there are PhD theses and careers and books that will be written on the subject that will benefit the world in terms of preparedness. And I can be more specific. So never in modern history has there been a virus and a pandemic that's been essentially uniform with small variability around strains. But basically, you can look at the SARS-CoV-2 virus as a pretty much uniform threat that has enveloped and encircled the globe over the last two plus years. And but we've been reading for the same duration of time about how Sweden has handled the virus and New Zealand and Singapore and the success story of China and the lack of success story of the United States. And so I think what, what we are seeing is a natural experiment of how governments and societies and cultures deal with the same biological threat. And how, how cool is that as an experimental platform? So the lessons learned, I think, are going to be qualitative and quantitative. We, we're going to have really good numbers as to the human toll over time, trends you know, in many, many countries. And we're also going to have a pretty good handle on things like you know, through the Global Human Development Index, through metrics around you know, financial position of countries per capita, income, healthcare system, quality, you know, there are going to be all kinds of independent variables we can check against these dependent variables, which is the health outcomes from COVID around the same virus. So there's going to be huge learnings about what worked and what didn't work. So, and we already, you know, we have a pretty good idea qualitatively. Governments that have more command and control, some, some autocratic, some democratic, but uh, governments that have more of a, of a command and control strength in their countries tend to do better 
governments that have strong IT systems and data management systems and public health systems that are uniform are going to do better. And countries that are more fragmented have more local authority and less common systems are going to do less well. So that's some early, fairly obvious things, but we're going to we're going to be able to drill down and get more, much more granular and interesting information that's going to help the world, should we choose to actually collaborate in how we do our research and then uh, publicize it. Well, thank you, Dr. Phillips, so much for joining us today. You can find more information about Dr. Phillips' work at the COVID Collaborative at covidcollaborative.us, and you can follow him on Twitter at at Stephen COVID doc. Again, that is Stephen COVID doc. Thanks again to Dr. Phillips for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's Beyond COVID initiative at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening and we'll see you back soon.